Lines 11 and 12 of the Shanghai Metro will drop you within footsteps of Longhua Temple. This Buddhist temple has been built, demolished, and rebuilt more times than history as we know it is capable of determining. The internet is riddled with claims that the original structure dates back to 242 AD, although there's practically no evidence to support this. Maps show the area underwater until the Tang Dynasty, which doesn't begin until 618. A more likely origin is the Hall and Pagoda, then called Kongxiangsi, constructed here during the Northern Song Dynasty. Emperors took turns tweaking and renaming it from there. The temple endured a pirate invasion, an accidental bombing, and a mob of roughly 1,000 red guards bent on bringing down the pagoda, the eaves of which bore witness as Longhua transformed from a place of worship into an execution ground, an internment camp, and a storage facility for rice. You can breathe easy, though. It now has the honor of being one of 5,058 major historical and cultural sites protected at the national level. I'd like to say that this sedimentary layering was palpable to me as I toured the grounds of Longhua Temple, but it was not. This temple is important to me for one reason only, and it is a reason of zero historical and cultural significance. It was where I first saw Habib. We didn't speak. It was a weekday in August, late morning, typhoon season. One storm would have barely taken off before the next moved in to take its place, like planes on an overcrowded runway. The day was especially humid, and less than 30 minutes later, it began to rain. I heard the clanging of bells and looked up to see a procession of monks headed towards the room with 500 golden statues of Aritz. I followed them. There was an altar in the center where a family of three, two parents and their adult daughter, knelt down and bowed their heads in reverence. They seemed to have requested a ceremony of unknown significance. I yanked my video camera out of my backpack to film the scene. The ritual involved drum beating, chanting, and some mild choreography. Owing to the heat, several of the monks fanned themselves throughout the performance. One of them tried to hide his face behind his fan, apparently not wanting to be filmed. I lack the perversion for filming people who don't want to be, so I steered my camera away from him. But when a young man in the crowd stepped directly in front of my lens and stood there for several minutes blocking my shot, I was annoyed. I'd noticed him before. The weekday morning crowd was thin, and he was the only other foreigner there. This was one of the paradoxes of living abroad. You left your country, ostensibly to escape the bounds of a geographically predetermined identity. But once you got there, and this is especially true somewhere like China with an ethnic supermajority, you found yourself even more constrained by phenotype than you were before passport control. You were no longer Joseph or Pauline or the doctor or the student. You were the American or the white girl. There might be one other foreigner in a crowd of a thousand, and you and this other person would meet as surely as Sucho Creek flows into the Huangpu. 
though I made my best effort to avoid expats whenever possible, this is precisely what happened that day at Longhua. Both of us were alone. He looked to be about my age. He wore shorts and a loose-fitting t-shirt. His hair was brown, frizzy, and overgrown. Later, I'd found out that he'd been in China for a while and didn't know where to get his hair cut. His silhouette recalled that of a guy I'd had a crush on in high school. Tall and thin, but not really athletic. It's strange how unresolved feelings for someone in your past can shine a halo on a total stranger. Also, his shoulders were slightly hunched over, like something in him rejected the height that was naturally his. I'd got the sense that he'd noticed me and was considering an approach. I think I may have sighed louder than necessary to try to get him to move out of my shot. I don't remember every detail exactly, although now I wish I did. The vague and missing pieces have become sacred in retrospect. I do know that he got out of my way eventually, and left shortly after. He wasn't the type to hang around anywhere too long investigating. At the time, I thought nothing of it. A visitor to a temple, a tourist in a place plagued by them, the likes of which I passed every day. Surely I never imagined that in a city of 26 million I'd see that stranger again, or that he'd become more than a stranger to me. This is the story of how wrong I was. listening to Have We Met Before. My name is Kasia, and these are stories of people I can't forget. The second time I saw Habib was in much the same configuration, me behind my camera and him in front of it. It was a day or two after the sighting at Longhua. We ran into each other on one of the first floor galleries of the Shanghai Museum. There was a guide standing before an inscribed oracle bone, explaining to a tour group how this script evolved into contemporary Chinese characters. There was a sea of phone screens, all poised to photograph the same thing, and I thought it looked funny enough to justify documenting. A camera is a gun. You're a lot more likely to shoot at nothing when you're holding one in your hand. When I felt that I'd sufficiently captured the absurdity of the moment, I pulled my head back from the viewfinder and spotted a familiar figure to my right. It was the guy from the temple, he had his own phone out and was, quite dispassionately, taking a photo of the same thing. But though his phone was pointed at the group, his head was turned towards me, and before I could avoid it, we caught eyes. 
I somehow knew from his look that he'd gone to stand where he was standing because he'd recognized me and wanted to get my attention. I was oddly sure of this. So much so that I shouted over the multilingual din of museum chatter, Hey, I've seen you before, in his general direction. He nodded like we'd greeted each other a hundred times and walked my way, stationing himself to my left. Are you making a documentary about the city? he asked, pointing to the video equipment Velcro fastened to my right hand. His eye contact was so unabashed that it spooked me. I turned my head forward to continue the conversation with the backs of the tour group. Something like that. How'd you know? Your camera. Too professional. Anyone else would just use their phone. Ah, I said, by way of reply. I'd selected that camera specifically because I thought it would make me look less like a professional and more like a tourist, but I didn't tell him that. So that writing, is that where Chinese characters came from? The wording of the question made it clear that he already knew the answer. I turned my head one-eighth of the way towards him. He was looking at me with the big, hungry eyes of someone using any excuse to talk to another person. Unaccustomed to receiving such a look, I stored its memory away for later scrutiny. Yeah, I said. Do you know much Chinese? No, he answered, chuckling as if this were a ridiculous notion. What, do, do you? he asked, clearly thinking I wouldn't, but sobering up his tone enough to allow for the possibility. No, not well, but I'm taking night classes, and I had a year of it in college. He nodded, half impressed. You're American? he asked, again knowing the answer, but this time not bothering to mask it. Yes, are you? This was the first moment that it occurred to me he might not be. No, 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 he said. Lebanese. Lebanese, I repeated. I would have thought you were American. He laughed. Here's another paradox for you. Americans are always happy when you assume they're non-American, and non-Americans are always happy when you assume they're American. Don't you hear my Arab accent, he asked looking like he would be thrilled if the answer was no. No, I said, without certainty. Say something. Say what, he asked. Mm, my captors are treating me well. He threw up both hands, saying, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Hmm, I said, tapping my chin. I guess I can now that you mention it. Now that I've known him for years, and my ears are far better trained, I can definitely hear his accent. I need to work on it before moving to the U.S., he said, partly joking as we regained our composure. But I'm so glad to be talking to you. I've been craving good English. Every time I see another foreigner, I'm like, please, talk to me. As I've said before, listeners, I distrust this impulse but the fact of his obscure national origin made me interested in him, proving that I'm just as shallow and flag-minded as anyone. There were so many things I wanted to ask him about now that I didn't know where it would be appropriate or inappropriate to begin. I just needed to pick one. Did you want to talk to me at the temple? I'd recently discovered the trick of asking what I really wanted to know rather than what I thought I was supposed to ask in a given situation, and new worlds had opened up as a result.
Yes, oh my god, he exclaimed, relieved that I'd freed us from the prison of not saying what was apparent to us both. I was silently victorious. Did you see that monk who was hiding his face behind his fan because he didn't want to be on camera, he asked. Yes! I couldn't believe he'd picked up on that. We got through the basics. Why I was in China, and why was he? He said he hadn't come to China. He'd left Lebanon. He didn't want to spend the summer at home, so he found a last-minute teaching job in Shaman, a seaport in the southeast, through his school. He was about to begin his final year at the American University in Beirut, where he studied finance. Instead of flying home directly after the program ended, he and some of the friends he'd made tacked a few days in Shanghai onto the end of their trip. But he was disappointed by the city, finding that it didn't have enough to satisfy him. I thought it would be like New York, where I could just do thing after thing after thing, he told me. He was leaving tomorrow morning. Without deciding on it, we started going through the museum together. We walked into the gallery on the opposite side of the first floor. Everything in it was made of bronze. Though I'd already gone through it just minutes ago, I said nothing and acted as if I hadn't. There was a security guard stationed at the entrance. When his eyes hung on me a few seconds longer than they did on the rest, I knew he had noticed. This museum is terrible, Habib declared out of nowhere. They separated everything according to material. A gallery for calligraphy, a gallery for ceramics, a gallery for painting, and so on. I'm sure there were many pieces to be marveled at individually. But when you're in a room filled with exclusively jade, it's hard to appreciate the 87th piece of jade as much as you did, say, the third. Habib and I tore right across these gallery floors, more interested in one another than in anything officially on display. We were in a world-class museum dedicated to the treasures of Chinese civilization, but somehow all we could discuss was a tiny Mediterranean country 4,000 miles away. You can't tell the story of Lebanon without telling the story of the entire Middle East, he said. Wait, do you want me to give you a quick history from my perspective? It'll be faster in the end. Evidently, he wanted to give me such a history, and the question was a mere formality. I barely nodded my head before he waded in. First, geography. Do you know where Lebanon is? He asked, looking at me like he knew the question sounded condescending, but didn't mean for it to. By Israel. And Syria, I said, raising my voice at the end, ever so slightly, to guard against the possibility of being wrong. Yes. Whew! I mocked-wiped my brow with the back of my hand. I wouldn't have held it against you if you didn't. Is that true? I asked, giving him a come-on-now smirk. He took a beat to truly consider. No, you're right. I totally would've, he replied before returning to the task at hand. So a good place to begin is with the Balfour promise. The Balfour Declaration, I asked to clarify. Yes, that. So in this document, the British government expresses its support for a Jewish state in Palestine.
I remember wishing that I was wearing a wire. By the time we'd finished the second floor, we'd gotten through the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the League of Nations carve-up of Syria and Lebanon, the end of the French Mandate, the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, the 1967 Arab-Israeli War, the Lebanese Civil War, the 1982 Lebanon War, the U.S. Embassy bombing, the Marine Barracks bombing, the rise of Hezbollah, the Taif Agreement that kind of, sort of, ended the Civil War in 1989, and the assassination of the new president less than a month later, the 2006 war, the latest wave of refugees owing to the proxy war in Syria, and oh, I think we talked a bit about the Phoenicians, too. Habib became more animated as we moved towards times in history that he or his immediate relatives had personally experienced. He told me about the Beirut garbage strike as we toured a room of mannequins dressed in outfits representing China's 55 ethnic minorities. The crisis began in July 2015 when the only landfill serving all of Beirut closed without a backup plan. Pretty soon, trash collectors just stopped collecting, and the streets of the city began piling high with trash. Habib waved his arms and occasionally sprayed spit on my face as he spoke. Things got so bad that people finally took to the street to pick up the garbage, I interjected. To protest, he shouted over me before breaking into laughter. For a moment, he laid his hand on my back to steady himself. A woman to our left turned to purse her lips at us. The scene was ripe with romantic possibility. Hot garbage, car bombs, and endless chaos are basically my version of roses, chocolates, and champagne. Two strangers meet in a foreign city. They run into each other at the same place at the same time two days in a row. They strike up a conversation in an art museum and circle precious antiquities while discussing the finer points of Middle Eastern politics. Okay, so we'd only discussed the broad Wikipedia summary points so far but I was sure the finer points were coming soon. What are you doing after this? He asked as we descended the stairs to the lobby. A curious question, really. It says, I want to do something with you after this, without saying it outright. I hid my delight so deep within myself that even I didn't know it was there. I was supposed to meet my friends, but they're all still sleeping at the hostel, he added undercutting the sincerity of his implied invitation. This was a fascinating tendency in people, to tiptoe towards you and then fearfully dart back. I did it too, all the time, so I could only brush it by with quiet knowing. I checked the time on my phone. It's one and they're still sleeping? We all went to a rooftop pool party last night, he said, as if that explained it. And yet you're awake. Well, I'm only here for a short time, and there's things I want to do. Would you want to go to the Propaganda Poster Museum with me? He asked. That's another thing I wanted to hit today. The one in the French Concession? He looked at me in confusion. What's the French Concession? I restrained myself from saying, You don't know the French Concession? Because of course he wouldn't. But he was as worldly and assured as any expat living here so it was easy to forget that he was only a college student in China on a summer program. Oh, it's a famous area of the city. It's green and leafy and there's lots of white people and croissants and smoothie places, I said. Anyways, I tried to find that museum once and gave up because I couldn't. 
From the pictures, it looks like it's not a standalone place, but just in some guy's apartment building. Yeah, I knew that going in, but I still got lost in pursuit, I said. Well, then let's get lost together. We did get lost, and sooner than expected. Though People Square Station has something like 20 entrances and exits, we somehow walked around the park in circles for a while without finding one. But simply moving through the world with Habib was exhilarating. Whether it was holding up a metro card to the sensor until the light flashed green, taking an escalator deeper and deeper underground, walking as far as the yellow line and waiting there, hearing the rumble of the approaching train and feeling the wind on my face as it rolled past, all of these mundane experiences were improved by his presence. This probably had more to do with my chronic alienation at the age of 25 than it did with him as an individual. Either way, I was content. It was the dead time, transportation-wise, so most of the seats were empty when we got on. But we didn't sit. I can still recall the way he balanced as we stood, with one hand gripping the overhead rail and the other in a hard plastic handhold. At the time, this particular metro line was running an art project on the handholds. Each featured a famous English poem on one side and its Chinese translation on the other. I started to say something about the poem in his hand, one by Lord Byron, but he began talking about how positions in the Lebanese government are allocated based on religious sect. The president of the republic must be a Maronite Christian, the president of the National Assembly a Shiite Muslim, and so on. And which sect do you belong to? I asked. Oh, me? He seemed hesitant to answer, which was unusual for him. My family is part of something really small and obscure called the Druze. It's like mystical Islam, but we don't fast or go to mosques or anything. Oh, the Druze. I had a Druze co-worker, I said. But that's not to say I know anything about the religion. Interesting, he said. I'm surprised you've even heard of it. He turned his head to look out the window. The metro tunnel walls are lined with screens so that when trains go past, the ads on them appear animated, like a rapid transit zoetrope. This one was for Hershey's Kisses, and featured a beautiful Chinese woman dangling a chocolate kiss over the gaping mouth of an equally beautiful Chinese man. We made eye contact as he turned back, and the recognition of our uncertain acquaintance passed between us without comment. Soon enough, the train came to a stop, and the intercom announced, first in Chinese, then again in English, that we'd arrived at Jiaotong University, our station. We resurfaced on a quiet, tree-lined street. I pointed out that these were London plane trees, planted by the French, over a hundred years ago. You'll never escape the French, I told him. Wait, you mean to tell me that this tree is French? He stopped to inspect one. Are trees subjected to such things? I asked. He lightly tapped on the trunk, as you might a person on their shoulder. Pardon, he said to the tree. Would you please present some proof of nationality? We thought we were very clever. Betraying its mystery, we did finally find the propaganda museum but only by relying heavily on Habib's phone map. Two tickets? asked the man who worked the front desk. 
Habib nodded. Paying together? the man asked. Separate, Habib said. So we paid for our tickets separately, and were granted access to a collection of thousands of rare Chinese propaganda posters. No smoking, no photos, the man instructed. Habib and I exchanged serious looks, as though we'd just been given a mission of global consequence. The atmosphere inside was hushed, and we subconsciously lowered our voices to conform. Habib got really into the posters, and I giggled at the ones he pointed out. There were the expected crowds of young people holding their little red books aloft, impossibly happy families, and of course, Chairman Mao's disembodied head floating above the landscape as if he were the sun itself. But it was the discoveries that stood out to me most. Children killing sparrows with slingshots to promote the Four Pests campaign, and African revolutionaries reading the works of Mao for inspiration. My caffeine level crashed around the time of the anti-gang of four push. I was becoming too faded to participate in much of the banter Habib desired. So to his every little sparkling remark, I responded in the manner of a slogan. Long live Chairman Mao. Chairman Mao loves children. Chairman Mao gives us a happy life. Luckily, this bit played well enough to sustain me through to the end. So where are we going next? He asked as we left. Your friends are still asleep? He checked his phone for show. I haven't heard from them, he said. Well, the masses need a cup of coffee. I had envisioned myself enjoying one in solitude for at least 15 minutes. Can I come with you? he asked, with unexpected earnestness. Sure, I said, suddenly softened. It's incredible how I vacillated between savoring his company and resenting it. The thrill of turning a stranger into a friend and maybe more dissipated in a matter of hours. And yet at the same time I was charmed by his wish to pal around all afternoon. Now I would call this a defensive ambivalence conjured by my ego. In the moment I was none the wiser. I knew of a coffee shop not far from there. As I led the way, he told me of his plans for the future. A straightforward path from graduation to naturalization as an American citizen. Hopefully by way of Wall Street. But I'm not dumb enough to think I'll go straight from Beirut to Goldman, he said. You'd become a member of the capitalist class? I asked. We can't all be wandering artists, he replied before going off on a tangent about his visit to the Shanghai Stock Exchange. My walking pace tripled as we neared the front door of Acosta Coffee. I ordered an Americano, black. He ordered an iced coffee with room for cream and a blueberry muffin. We paid separately. I haven't eaten anything yet today, he said, though I hadn't requested an explanation. Oh no, why not? I woke up late and I really wanted to see that museum. It's good you denied yourself, or else you may have missed out on that amazing oracle bone. I was leaving an opening for us to revel in the serendipity of our meeting. He smiled, then changed the subject. What's your daily budget here, by the way? The man could not keep his mind off money management. The only thing I spent money on daily was the metro and street food, the sum of which wouldn't have exceeded five US dollars on even my most lavish day. I don't know. What's yours? I asked, not out of interest, just returning the favor. I don't remember his response, but it was surely a prudent amount. 
My drink was up, so I grabbed the tray it was on and found us a table. I took one sip and felt instantly restored. When Habib came over to join me, he was pouting like an underfed Pomeranian. What's the matter? I asked. They gave me a double chocolate muffin, he said. Oh, and you'd ordered a blueberry. I'd expect nothing less from an imperialist chain. China problems, he said with a shrug. You can ask them to swap it, I said as he sat down. No, no, not my style. Silence descended on the table for a moment. Eventually I sensed that it would fall upon me to move the conversation forward. Are you excited to return home? I asked. Ah, beyond, he said, tearing his muffin into quarters with his hands. If I'd known him better, I would have reached over and taken a bite for myself. I am so sick of China. Why is that? I asked. I mean, how long have you been here? Aren't you? I haven't been bored for a moment. I don't know, he said, with the air of someone who knew exactly, but felt that present company wouldn't understand. People are weird and prudish? What makes you say that? I asked, surprised by this perception, but trying to cultivate my objectivity. So, this one time at the place where I was working, we were all having a big group lunch, and I just put my arm around my girlfriend's waist, like, like this, you know? He mimed, putting his arm around some invisible person's waist beside him, as if this motion required demonstration. And just for that, I was summoned to the head office and threatened to be sent home on the very next plane. That's strange, I said, but maybe that's just where you were at? I don't think that's reflective of the entire country, and certainly not somewhere like Shanghai. I can hardly ride the train without being propositioned, I said, outwardly turning rational. Internally, the landscape was quite different. So Habib had a girlfriend, or so he said. I got this stinging, adolescent feeling whenever someone of the opposite sex casually mentioned their girlfriend. He was attractive and smart and funny, but I didn't admire him. Still, I felt disappointed. Sex made me a double agent, a traitor to myself. Habib pulled a face that acknowledged my comment without agreeing or disagreeing with it. You know, you should come to Lebanon sometime. I think you'd really like it. It's so much easier to communicate, too. Everybody speaks English. They do? I asked incredulously. Oh, yeah. All Lebanese speak three languages, Arabic, French, and English. This, now knowing from experience, was an insane overstatement. How expensive is it? I asked. Like here, he said. And is it safe? Oh, yeah, totally safe, he said. This story takes place in the summer of 2018. The only major bombing we've had in recent years was in a Hezbollah neighborhood, and like, 50 people died. He laughed nervously. I mean, 50 is bad, but, you know. You don't feel unsafe in your day-to-day life, I said, holding out my palm to offer this as a suggestion. No, no, I personally don't. Just don't go anywhere the U.S. government wouldn't want you to be. But those might be the very places that I want to go. Then you're on your own for those. He reached for the straw of his iced coffee, but there was none left. His phone, lying upright on the table in front of us, buzzed to life. He seized it like contraband, 
and faster than I would have been able to read and absorb text of any length, his thumbs began typing out a reply. So your friends are up, I said, when he returned to the table from the portal of his iPhone. My friends are up, he echoed. He skipped any parting excuses. Let me add you on Facebook, he said. That way, if you ever come to Beirut, I can show you around. I don't have Facebook, I told him. WhatsApp? he asked. I shook my head. I don't have WhatsApp either. What do you use? he asked. WeChat? I proposed. Okay, okay, I think I'll keep that one, he said, pulling up the app. My phone only worked with Wi-Fi, so I took a picture of his QR code and told him that I'd send him a text whenever I got home. He was rising from his chair and gathering his backpack as I explained this as fast as I could, matching his urge to depart. Have a safe flight home, I ended. It was nice to meet you. Thanks, pleasure to meet you too, he said, with eyes already on the door. He motioned to grab his tray, but I stopped him. Oh, I'll take care of that, I said, waving my hand over it. He retreated without hesitation. Great, thanks, he said again, before disappearing into the street. What was I to make of such an encounter? The question hung over me like a predator drone. Clutter in my WeChat contacts? A botched meet-cute that nevertheless held potential? A free ride from the Beirut airport if I ever made it over there. He was addicted to his phone, in need of constant stimulation, conventional and worldview, and yet welcoming, challenging, and refreshing all the same. The next morning an airliner carried Abib away. Our meeting stood out in my memory as striking and misfit as Longhua's pagoda amongst the sprawl of high-rises and shopping malls. Its origins are dubious and not what they first seem. Its history is full of accidents, blank spaces, reversals and affronts, the full extent of which are forever lost to time. But the fact of its still standing is undeniable. The story wasn't over. Yet there in the former French concession of the most populated city in the most populated country in the world, sitting alone at a table in a British coffee chain that pretended to be Italian, staring at the gray tray table of a Lebanese boy I'd seen by chance exactly twice in my life. I thought that it might be. listening to Have We Met Before. Join me again in two weeks for bad English and some even worse Spanish. Theme music composed by John Hookstra.
Quick note, much of the historical information about Longhua Temple came from an article by Eric N. Danielson, published in the Journal of the Royal Asiatic Society.